If you're an entrepreneur, you know what it means to take personal and financial risks, create jobs that support your community, and devote most of your time to your business. But do you know how to plan for a successful exit from your business? Do you know who should be involved in creating your succession or transition plan and the steps along the way? Welcome to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. The podcast theme is inspired by critically acclaimed business author, Bo Burlingham, author of Finish Big, how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top. In this podcast, you'll hear success stories of exit plans done right and pick up practical tips based on years of legacy business advisors' expertise and knowledge about the largest and most important financial transaction of your life. Now, on to the show. Hello, this is Mark Norman, your host of the Finish Big Podcast, and today I am exceptionally pleased to have a gentleman who's become a, a friend. He's been a client for quite a long time, but most importantly, a, fan, a friend. It's someone I look up to, Mr. Nate Sublet. Nate is the uh, president slash owner of Benchmark Craftsman. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Benchmark. Benchmark is located in Seville, Ohio, which is about uh, 20 miles west of Akron, about 35, 40 miles south of Cleveland. And they're in a very unique niche business. They're custom design and fabricators for trade show exhibits and environments, also for in events. So we're going to touch on that. What I want to say about Nate is he's... He really sells himself short. He calls himself, hey, I'm just a carpenter. But as we'll see here throughout the show, he's uh, he's got a lot lot to offer. So, uh, Nate, my good friend, welcome to Finish Big, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks, Mark. It's exciting to be here with you. Great, great. Thank you. So I want to get uh, – we'll dive right in here. So tell me a little bit about your business. I first knew of you through a business called Cyclonics, which, if I understand correctly, was started by your father. But walk us through – how long, although you you are a carpenter by trade, you've become quite a successful business person. You are, by definition, a baby boomers, for those of us who are listening, and you're looking kind of at a transition, perhaps, down the road. But let's start at the beginning. Talk to us about Cyclonics, what your role was there, how your dad got started, et cetera. Sure. Cyclonics was in the same business we are. They were uh, designers of exhibits and environments, uh, they worked heavily in the trade show arena, and uh, also they did uh, some museum work and that kind of thing. A little bit of on the environment side, not as much as we do now, uh, as far as designing and building retail and, uh, experiences for uh, stores, any kind of retail store, restaurants. And, uh, car dealerships have become a big thing for us, uh, doing the interiors of car dealerships and that kind of thing. Uh, but Cyclonics was started in 1968 by my father. Uh, he was... And what was in his business name? with a with a lifelong friend of his. Yeah, and what was uh, your dad's it, name, Nate? My my father was Herman Sublet. Herman, okay. And was yep. he a carpenter as well? He was a carpenter. He was okay. one heck of a cabinet maker. Built some okay. beautiful furniture, which my wife and I are still enjoying. That's awesome. <laughs> and that kind of thing. He was a graduate. He was in the Army Air Force during World War II, uh, and then went to uh, Berea College in Kentucky on the GI Bill. Berea is a well-known school for Appalachian people. He was from Kentucky. And uh, at that school, they had uh, the ability for their students to earn their tuition and uh, expenses by working in uh, college-sponsored uh, industries. And one of them was a uh, woodworking factory uh, where they built furniture and things like that. And my father ended up being involved there. And then his partner uh, went to another school up the street in Lexington, Kentucky, 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, he moved to Cleveland. He got a job with a gentleman who uh, was a uh, refugee from the Batista uh, regime in Cuba. He came in the mm-hmm. 40s. He was doing theater and set design stuff. And they were looking for a carpenter and that, trying to find somebody that would fit their team. They interviewed my father and my father came north to Cleveland in uh, 1954. Uh, and I was born in 1955, and he went to work for Mr. Gallo and uh, his team there. The Gallo, they ended up being Gallo Displays, doing trade show exhibits, and then uh, oh, yeah, he and no, Reed left. Yeah, he and Reed left uh, Gallo and started a company called Cyclonics. Now that's um, uh, that had to be a, a, a leap of faith there back uh, in the in the late 60s. So that was 68, and uh, my notes yeah. tell me that you started with them in right around 77, 78. Is that right? Yes, uh, that was after I graduated from uh, college, and uh, I went to school in Kentucky as well, uh, mm-hmm. down at another school that's well known for uh, wood uh, woodworking and wood uh, training. I'm a uh, wood technology major from fifty some years ago. That world has changed completely. Wow! Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was uh, that's I followed in my father's footsteps in that regard, and uh, they offered me a job instead. Of t- I was teaching school for a little bit in a county school down in Kentucky and uh, came home for Christmas and they offered me a job and the pay was almost double at $8,000. So I decided to take it. (laughs) $8,000. Wow. And and what was it like working with your dad? Did you enjoy that? You know, uh, I did. It was a great experience. Uh, He and I didn't always see eye to eye on things, Mm -hmm. but uh, we literally shared a partner's desk. He worked on one side of the desk. I worked on the other side of the desk. Both of us spent a lot of time on the shop floor. Uh, with our uh, with our craftsmen and our crew, uh, overseeing the quality of our product and everything that we were building and making sure that our customers were well satisfied with uh, you know our quality and timing. Uh, I learned a lot from him uh, about how to deal with people, how to deal with uh, craftsmen. Uh, I learned a, a great deal about what what is quality and what isn't quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very important for anybody that's producing any kind of product. Uh, especially when your reputation staked on it, and ours is, and ours was at Cyclonics as well. Uh, we were fortunate enough to gain clients through word of mouth. We never advertised. Client would uh, recommend us to somebody else that they knew, and before you know it, we'd have them as a customer, and we gained uh, gained clients that way. In fact, uh, one of the interesting stories is is their first customer was black, one of their first customers was Black and Decker uh, mm-hmm. Tools, and they were doing their trade show exhibits. Uh, to this that's, day, that's still a customer of Benchmarks today, right? Yes. We'll uh, touch on that. Well, yeah. So Black and me, Decker and Stanley Tools joined each other and they're still a customer of ours. So they've been uh, they've been with my family uh, working and doing the same thing for them for, you know, since 1968. So wow. 50 years, pretty well, close to 50 years. Hats off to you. And then you had a partner and you then in turn bought your dad and and, and Reed Heskamp, the owners of Cyclonics, out. How did that conversation come about? I mean, Finish Big's all about transition, planning, succession, business continuity. Uh, was that a smooth passing of the baton? Would you have done anything differently there? You know, it was an easy passing of the baton. And I think because all of the parties wanted it to happen. Uh, it was something that my partner and I, a gentleman named Marty McGreevy, had been with us for a little while. We wanted it to happen. And um, my father and his partner wanted it to happen. They were looking to slow down. And uh, work was getting in the way of things they'd rather be doing at the time. So it, we just structured a very, very simple stock purchase deal 
they were not not greedy at all. Uh, we took advantage of a, uh, a compensation deferment uh, deferred, clause. Yeah, deferred, they, deferred compensation that they had set up? Yes. And, and we took advantage of that, which was helpful to us and to them. And then uh, we, we uh, remained in the building that they had. So we uh, signed a, a short-term, well, relatively short-term uh, lease to stay in the building. So they got their income, you know, for what they wanted out of the company through that. So uh, it worked out real well. It was a friendly transition. Uh, it worked really uh, smoothly. Both my father and his partner uh, stayed involved with us for a little while. Uh, to help us transition and to help the people that were working there, you know, transition, get used to us. To be honest with you, we I've been there for a long time already. That was mm -hmm. uh, almost 20 years after I joined the company. So everybody knew me uh, yeah. pretty well. And Marty yeah, was relatively they, 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 I'm sure they, they didn't know you. I mean, uh, your dad's kind of running the show. He's the man with Reed. And now all of a sudden you're, so there's always that kind of, hey, I'm in charge now. I mean, was that a, was that a tough road to hoe or you'd kind of earn your street cred, so to speak, huh? Well, I, I, I had earned my stripes. There's no doubt about it. And we were smart enough. The transition took two or three years mm -hmm. and I moved into different uh, roles of responsibility with the company prior to taking over completely. And uh, that worked out real well for us in a response, in a situation responsibly where I had some, P where I had P&L uh, responsibilities at that time for them. They were smart. We, we, we really, uh, they trained me well, let's put it that way before they turned me loose. Let's say. Right. right. So it was you and a partner buying out you, your dad and his partner. How did business, how big was Cyclonics when you purchased it? Uh, how big did it get? And obviously you run benchmarks. So Cyclonics, Cyclonics came to an end. Walk us through that kind of continuum, if you will. Yeah, Cyclonics grew pretty well. I mean, it was on a good growth path when we took over or when we uh, stepped into the ownership. I shouldn't say took over, but we stepped into the ownership. And it was on a nice path, a growth path. Uh, Marty was an excellent salesman, and he brought a lot of uh, experience to the table in selling. And we turned out to be a pretty good team. Uh, we took the company from, at the time when we purchased it, uh, in 1994, it was a four million dollar uh, a year company. It was had about 25 employees, and by the time we sold it, uh, we had grown it out to a 14 million dollar a year company with about 40, uh, 45 employees. Uh, we were very solid, very profitable the whole way. Mm -hmm. uh, we really didn't have any trials and tribulations in that regard. Cash flow is always uh, interesting in our business, but uh, you learn to manage that after a while. But uh, we grew, uh, we grew pretty well, and then uh, we kind of got on the radar screen of a uh, some of these venture capital groups that were looking for businesses where there were small uh, companies like ours, which our industry is full of family-owned small businesses. There's a few big ones, but most of them are pretty middle-sized, from anywhere from four million to twenty million dollars. And some of these VC companies were looking to uh, buy up companies like ours and roll us up you know, mm -hmm. to form larger organizations. So we, we were, we got on the radar screen of a group out of uh, Fort Worth, Texas that had a lot of cash and uh, we uh, met all their criteria for the purchase and that kind of thing. Uh, they came to us and uh, Marty and I both looked at it and said, we can't afford not to do this for our families. Mm -hmm. and how, so, how old were you then when you sold the business? I was 45 years old at that time. Wow. 
did you ever think like, heck, what am I going to do now? Or this was just a too good to, to pass up. I was going to go be a fishing guy. <laughs> I don't know. There's some, there's some summers you're still a fishing out. guy. I know you like to fish now. Yeah, that didn't work out. That didn't work out. Uh, to be honest with you, you know, I uh, when I left the company and uh, they kept me on for a year uh, just to help transition, mm-hmm. and I left the company. I was um, kind of looking for something to do. I had a, you know, I had a little bit of money. I had some uh, things I wanted to do and accomplish. So I spent a, about a year and a half, two years. Uh, trying my hand at a few other things. I got into a little bit into uh, construction. I joined a small construction company here in Medina uh, as part of their business managers. They welcomed me and I was fortunate to go to work for them. And uh, so I got a little uh, experience in uh, commercial construction. They were doing uh, strip center, uh, shopping centers. They were doing a little little bit of light industrial construction and that kind of thing. So that kind of gave me the introduction to the uh, part of the business that I, we now lean on quite a bit. And that was the, uh, you know, custom designed interiors and custom build out interiors and stuff for yeah. uh, retail restaurants and that kind of thing. We did restaurants, we did stores, we did all kinds of stuff in that construction company. So it kind of opened my eyes to possibilities there. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So I think, so then, but you left the construction company, what year did you uh, start benchmark and what was the kind of the genesis of that idea? Yeah, we, um, we sold and closed on the sale of Cyclonics in uh, September of 99. And uh, I had a three-year non-complete, non-compete. Um, and I went and opened up, uh, started to get ready to open up Benchmark in 2002. I found that uh, construction game wasn't completely my uh, bailiwick. I, I enjoyed it, but it was I still missed what I was doing at Cyclonics and designing and building environments and uh, I'm just crazy enough that I enjoyed the pressure of uh, the trade show side where we were all working to tight deadlines and having customers with totally unreasonable demands. There's no such thing, of course, yeah. as a customer like that, but I felt they were at the time, but I actually enjoyed it. It was uh, something that was uh, gave me something to get up for and look forward to every morning when I hit the floor. I was going in to see what was going to happen next. You know, so uh, I started Benchmark and also even when I started it in 2002, I was looking, I thought, well, my father had given me this opportunity and it worked out really well for me. And I would like to build an opportunity that if my kids wanted to join it when they were ready to, that they could. So I, I was looking uh, to, to build a legacy on what my, the foundation my father gave us. So uh, we started today, Benchmark. Yeah, and today Benchmark is truly, ladies and gentlemen, a, a true family business. I mean, your wife Sue works in the business, your lovely wife Sue, your daughter Joanna, uh, your son Adam, your son Matt. I mean, these are some pretty dynamic people. And, and I imagine, uh, hey, I've got four kids. I, I tell you that all the time over lunch. I mean, there's some friction there sometimes. So what have you found at Benchmark? When did your kids join you? Did they all join at once? Was it, hey, come in, and or was it what kind of one-by-one? Walk us through that uh, that timeline. Yeah, they, they joined kind of one-by-one. Um, we started Benchmark in 2002. We, we grew very quickly. Uh, my first client through the door was the Stanley Black & Decker Group. So mm-hmm. they, they, once they found out that I'd started a new business, they shipped everything in. And then uh, several other of the clients that I had at Cyclonics came on board very quickly as well. So our company grew very quickly for the first year. Uh, we went from uh, four people to 15 people. Right. And obviously and, your uh, non-compete was over, but at what point did you say to your kids, Hey, 
I got this crazy idea. Why don't we all work together? Well, I don't know that I ever really said that. It just kind of happened. My uh, eldest son graduated uh, from Embry-Riddle down in uh, Daytona Beach. He was on a track in an aviation career, and he decided he didn't like the idea of uh, living the rest of his life in a small little office with one other guy, which is what, you know, being an airline pilot. And that was Matt or Adam? That was Matthew. Okay, all right. And and so he came on board pretty quickly. And then uh, Adam joined about a year later after he graduated from Ashland with a business degree. And then Joanna joined us uh, about two years later. I think everybody was on board by 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanna graduated from Miami down in uh, Oxford, Ohio with a mm-hmm. financial degree. All the kids were well prepared to join the business. There's no doubt about it. They, they brought a lot to the table for us. But what they didn't have is the carpentry experience, the master <laughs> woodworking experience, the construction background that you picked up. So, But you have been able to assemble a terrific team of tradesmen and tradeswomen, I should say, tradespeople throughout the year. So how big is Benchmark today? And uh, what are the respective roles and the hats that, Sue wears your wife, Sue, or the kids and yourself. So w- what's that org chart look like? Okay. The org chart's uh, pretty simple. I, uh, I brought on some key players from my Cyclonics days. My, uh, con- my controller at Cyclonics joined me. Uh, she's uh, a licensed CPA and she retains her license. Uh, she's we had been with me at Cyclonics for five years before uh, we started Benchmark and she knew the business really well. So Denise uh, Troughton's her name. She came on board with me. Uh, one of my main designers at Cyclonics came on board with me as well at that time, Bob Manthe. So we had familiar people when we started the company. The tradesmen that came on board were uh, probably the top guys in my shop from before. Uh, it, you know, it pays to be fair and it pays to be a good boss. And I, I guess I was. I didn't, I, I didn't realize it while I was doing it, but I've been told that that was the main reason they came on board. They were looking uh, to continue on the path that we had been on together before. So we had them, uh, a bunch of them came on. And then over the years, we've added other very, very talented people as we've come across. Our designers are uh, very well-known designers. Our uh, craftsmen are great craftsmen. Yeah. Uh, they they all learned, uh, you know, through uh, experience and training, uh, both. Uh, but they're they're carpenters, they're metal workers, they're electricians, they're uh, uh, plastics fabricators. Uh, we have a pretty large crew. Uh, Benchmark grew from four in 2002 to right now, with everybody included, including some of our uh, people that are part-time. We're about 65 people right now. Wow. Wow. What a success story. And our guest today is Nate Sublett. Nate's the president and owner of Benchmark Craftsman. So let's continue, Nate. So you're working with your three kids, Matt, Adam, and Joanna, your wife, but your business has taken on, I mean, I just know this from, you know, watching you and becoming a great observer of your terrific family and your business, but you've kind of separated your business. You still do trade show exhibits, but then you do also a lot of repeat business with car dealers, et cetera. If, if someone wants to basically redo the showroom of every Mazda dealership throughout the Midwest, you become their guy and you're building the same piece over and over again or pieces parts, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mark, we kind of divided the company into three, uh, three different plat. I like to call them platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, our company in all cases were design fabricating and installing. 
or managing the program for our clients. And the trade show side, we design and build the trade show exhibits. Uh, we move them to the venues, we set them up, we tear them down, we put them into storage or we move them to the next show. We have crews that work in every city in the country. Uh, we actually work on an international basis for some of our clients as well. Uh, we've made very strategic partnerships with our, uh, with our uh, vendors, our labor vendors and that kind of thing in cities all over the country. So that leads us to the second platform that we have and that's where we're doing the interiors uh, and designing interiors and things for restaurants, uh, car dealerships and that kind of thing. Uh, we've done a little bit of work for some of the chain restaurants. We worked quite a bit for Philip's Seafood out on the East Coast and down through the South, uh, doing all the designing and building and installing all their restaurants. They're very big in airports uh, around the East Coast and down through the South. We worked uh, uh, doing those restaurants. Uh, we would design it, fabricate all the components, ship it into the location, and then install it in the location, and then uh, do a quick training for uh, the people that were going to be using the stuff that we were, uh, had installed, and then we go on and do the next one. So, and that happened a lot because we were very comfortable in working all over the country in the trade show venues, yeah. and we had labor in all those locations. It wasn't like we had to ship our own guys down uh, to do the labor. We shipped our own guys down to be supervisors of labor and installation, guys that knew the job very well, had all the drawings, had everything in their head, and knew what exactly what was going to be done. It's preparation, preparation, preparation. Yeah. In quality, we make sure that everything fits perfectly, everything works out before it even arrives. So that's that's part of it. And then the third venue is something that my son, Matthew, really got us into. Uh, we work in the motorcycle motorsports world in events, uh, particularly for BMW uh, motorcycles. Uh, we have trucks roaming the country full of motorcycles going to dealerships. And our people uh, set up the bikes for for rides for demo rides and that kind yeah, of thing and yeah. then also yeah we have a staff of go ahead mark i'm no, sorry I mean, so no so if the local bmw uh motorcycle shop is having a hey meet and greet come meet the pro that's all your stuff that you're building you're kind of running that 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 event for them event planning yeah goals, right yeah we're running the event we're running the trucks that haul it uh we've got semi trucks uh, full of motorcycles and event uh, you know uh, materials and components all over the country and uh, then also what we have is some of our employees, and these are some of our part-time guys, uh, they are product specialists uh, that are on our payroll that know the products in and out. And they run the, they take people on the demo rides, they talk to them about the bikes, uh, they talk, you know, they help sell the bikes, you know, for the dealerships. And wow. they, they become product experts, work very closely with uh, dealerships. We also do all their national events like Bike Week. Sturgis is coming up in a week or so here. Uh, we do that. We do some of that same work for Harley Davidson. Their program's uh -huh. not as big as uh, BMW. So are, we, are we are we apt to see you in a black leather outfit during Bike Week, Nate? I, I don't look good in black, man. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the one of the things I want to explore, uh, and uh, again, we're talking with Nate Sublet, president and owner of Benchmark Craftsman today, and you're listening to the Finish Big Podcast with your host, Mark Dorman. But uh, the trade show business basically evaporated in a matter of three weeks during the beginning of COVID. It just dried up. There's a lot of trade show businesses and people in your field that it, it evaporated and went the way of the dinosaur. But you did something. You and your family did something very, very different. And I, this is 
where I just think that you're way, way more than just a carpenter. You're just such a resilient and adaptive business person. You got into the boat business, right? So talk to us about that and how long before we do that, let's put let's pause about how long. How deep was the trough of the trade show business when it evaporated and how long did it take to bounce back post COVID? Boy, that's uh I tell you what, I, I've never lived, I, like all our country, we never lived through anything like that. It came to a screeching halt on March the 8th, 2020. Uh, we were setting up some of the larger shows in Las Vegas and Orlando and that kind of thing. In fact, they uh, canceled the shows and made our crews who were working on installations leave the sh- uh, show floor immediately. They were They emptied the convention centers of the thousands of people that were working in there. And many of those shows stood partially erected for 30 to 60 days. Uh, And it took us about 60 to 90 days to recover all the materials that our clients had Mm -hmm. out on the road. We were unloading trucks here on a daily basis. In fact, our warehouse has never been so full as it was at that point because most of the time we had a lot of things out on the road. So it was that everything was never completely inside, you know, our facilities. So we we really uh, had a time. But other I than I just I just don't know that uh, there was a, another industry that it was negative as as negatively affected as trade shows in general and everything that and all the people that support trade shows, including Benchmark. But as I said, there was never an industry, in my opinion, that was as negatively affected as the trade show business and everyone who supports trade shows. How deep was the trough and how long did it take for you to get that platform and your, to use your term, back up and running where you were, you were back in business? And then you, you, again, the resiliency of you and your family and your business to come up with these virtual trade shows where people could still exhibit things, but more in an online environment. Walk us through that. Yeah, we were struggling for about 60 days, Mark. Wow, that's um, all. It, it really didn't take us long. My team is, uh, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are a whole lot smarter than I am. And they really grabbed the bull by the horns and said, let's do this, let's do this. Uh, it was kind of a brainstorming session on teams, you know, where we all got to work. I brought back some of our shop crew and we virtually set up a soundstage in our warehouse. We moved a bunch of stuff out to lease warehousing space and we set up a large soundstage in our in our warehouse where we would actually assemble our clients' exhibits and merchandise them and put them out just as if they were on the show floor. And then we worked, uh, you know, doing the virtual uh, exhibits and programming and that kind of thing. So we came back. We, we were within 90 days. We had sold several of the virtual platforms to some of our existing customers. Wow. And then within 120 days, we were rolling right along, selling it at a pretty good clip. And, and to other customers and other people, and even some show management uh, operations for some of the smaller shows in the country, you know, allowed us to help and work, work for them in uh, developing the, you know, getting a virtual trade show, uh, yeah. trade shows set but up. You, running, you, so. you also got into the, in, into the boat business, right? So uh, before we <laughs> wrap up here, tell us that story, because this is a yeah, I'm a lifelong boater. I've always enjoyed it. I've, I've spent a lot of my time, uh, most of my uh, free time is spent on the water, uh, especially here in the Great Lakes region. I also enjoy, uh, have enjoyed uh, a pretty nice amount of time on uh, the salt water in the Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean and areas like that. Uh, mainly the 
Gulf side of uh, Florida and always have been involved and enthralled with boats. So when I had a bunch of carpenters that had nothing to do and I knew they were very talented guys, I said, let's build some boats. So we did. And we started with it, and it's uh, it's really rolling along well for us. We're building, a but it's not just it, it's not just any boats. What kind of boats is it? Well, there, we we are finishing off. We we managed to coordinate and work out with a group called Lyman uh, Lyman Boatworks or Lyman Boats. Uh, they were an old line boat uh, here that was built in the Great Lakes region from the late 1800s until the early 1980s. Uh, one gentleman ended up buying uh, the Lyman name and all the factory tooling uh, and machinery and that kind of thing. And uh, when we decided to build boats, we decided we'd reach out to him and see if he was interested in having somebody, you know, revive the line of boats. Uh, we didn't really revive the line as it was. We took uh, the Lyman look, uh, which was uh, and some of the Lyman characteristics. And we did what uh, was done with the Mini Cooper and the now Minis. We up, we updated it. We made it a little bit more modern. We gave it, uh, you know, a little bit more of a 21st century spin. Uh, and uh, we're building a very high-end uh, wood boats. Uh, yeah, the Lyman was, boats are the uh, really kind of the super posh wood. What are they made out of? Mahogany or? Yeah, they're, they're mahogany, uh, uh-huh. mahogany boats, uh, some of them with paint finish, some of them with natural finish. Yeah. Uh, the Lyman was uh, well known for uh, being the uh, best boat to have on the Great Lakes. It handled our weather and our chop and our water conditions really well. And I have to say uh, the new boats are doing very well at, at that as well. They, they, they are becoming, you know, they, they handle superbly on choppy water. That and then they great. handle perfect on any water. So they, they, it's been a lot of fun. It's That's been, great. It's, kind of, it's been kind of what I've focused on, you know, because I want to. <laughs> yeah, nah, that's great. Our guest today has been Nate Sublet, the president and owner of Benchmark Craftsman. They do a lot of things, including exhibits, environments, fabricating wood. He's more than just a carpenter, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, they build boats, too, so... Uh, Nate, I can't thank you enough. I've uh, really enjoyed working with you and uh, getting to know you and your family and uh, appreciate you uh, being on the Finish Big Podcast this afternoon. Thanks for sharing your story. Mark, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me to join you. It's an honor. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. This is Mark Dorman, your host of the Finish Big Podcast. Here's to finishing big. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed listening to Finish Big, the podcast with Mark Dorman from Legacy Business Advisors. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes are available. Learn more at LegacyBusinessAdvisors.com or call 330-350-5410. Please be aware the information in these podcasts represent the views and opinions of our guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Legacy Business Advisors. The content is for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax or legal advice. Always seek the advice of your legal or tax professional with any questions regarding your specific situation.